Hello everyone, welcome to Chat Club. I'm your host Alan Hilchey and there's only one rule in Chat Club. Everybody talks about Chat Club. Today is going to be number episode number 37. I have a special guest here with me today. Her name is Jess. Jess has dealt with a lot of mental health daily challenges. Firstly, Jess, I would like to thank you for breaking your silence on mental health. Also, for being so brave and such an advocate for people that suffer alone with mental health. Being here today talking about one of the hardest subjects because people do not see the injuries as it's in the mind. Uh, also, a recommendation from Bruce Hollihan as you did an article with him. So, he suggested you come on here. We met before and we had a great pre-conversation to what we wanted to discuss and I'm so happy you're here with us today. Well thank you um I didn't talk about it for the longest time and that didn't really get me anywhere so I just kind of started going the opposite direction and thought you know maybe if I do talk about it things won't be quite so tricky and so I started opening up about it and telling my story and now here we are. <laughs> well Jess I want to get started by telling my listeners here on Chat Club is that a lot of them have different backgrounds and stuff, different countries. Just tell a little bit about yourself and just share your journey. Well, uh, so I was born and raised in Windsor, Ontario. Uh, I moved to New Brunswick the day after my 29th birthday, so I've been out here almost eight years. Uh, I've lived here and there. I've lived in Ottawa. I've lived in Thunder Bay. Um, and every city I've ever lived in, I've seen their side of mental health care uh, via the hospital systems or the community support systems. So I kind of have a interesting take on things. Um, so I'm 36 now and I've been going through mental health treatment for half my life. Uh, my diagnosis is a little complex because I have um, multiple diagnoses. So I have bipolar, uh, emotional intensity disorder, which is also classed as borderline personality disorder. Uh, I have PTSD and separate of those, although they can be symptoms, I also have actual diagnosis of depression, anxiety, and OCD. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my background there. Um, I got my first prescriptions when I was 18. And I say prescriptions, not diagnosis, because it was just my family doctor. I went to him and said, hey, I'm having these panic attacks. And he wrote me a script for pills and refills and sent me on my way. And, you know, didn't really give me much of a therapy plan or anything. And at the time, the panic attacks were so bad, they were actually, like, looking at me for seeing if I was having seizures. Because the panic attacks were presenting so dramatically. Um, and all they did was just kept upping the anxiety medications, still no talk of therapy. And after a year of that, uh, I was more depressed than ever and I had moved to Thunder Bay and, um, there was an incident in the night before my 20th birthday, I actually overdosed on my anxiety medication, not intentionally, but it happened in its in its own way and um yeah so i i turned 20 on the 29th but the 28th is the day i lived so it's kind of two days in one and some day some years it's a day to be celebrated and some days it still brings me down and it is what it is but here i am and i uh I kept, I kept going on that way and I ended up moving home from Thunder Bay because I couldn't, I couldn't live on my own in the dorms with the mental health struggles I was going through. So I moved home and they, they still didn't really do much for me and it would just continue on in that pattern. And I started researching and I found out that the anxiety pill they had prescribed me, one of the main side effects is depression if it's used in excess. So the pill they gave me should have been like a PRN, you know, take it if you have a panic attack. But they didn't look at my other pre-existing conditions. So they didn't say, hey, you know, this drug could actually make her more depressed even though it's going to help her anxiety. So the anxiety attacks were stopping, but the depression was getting deeper. And so 
I swore off the pills completely, which I don't recommend ever quitting cold turkey. That was a dangerous thing to do, but I was terrified because, you know, at 18, when your doctor says this is the pill you're supposed to be taking, who are you to question them? They're the doctor. And at the time, I didn't know that you could question and that you were entitled to question. So I went along with it without really researching it because I was 18 and my family doctor I'd seen my whole life said this is what you need. So I just kept taking it and it wasn't working. So that's when I started to be like, okay, next time we try something, like I'm going to do my homework. And next time rolled around, so I kind of just cast adrift for a couple years with no real treatment. I, jo I was jumping from job to job. I couldn't hold any kind of permanence. Um, and it was all because I'd work and I'd work and then I'd crack and I'd have a mental breakdown and I'd either be cast aside and fired or I'd be shamed into quitting. So 2005 to 2008 were just absolutely tumultuous years. Um, I had my first breakdown like breakdown that saw me get ER treatment in the spring of 2007 um, and they prescribed me this time an antidepressant for the first time in conjunction with my anti-anxiety meds and that started to work but again there was no real talk of therapy so by 2008 it was getting worse but I was still just on the drug combinations no therapy no mention of therapy from either my family doctor or at this point, I now had a psychiatrist, um, and neither one of them brought up therapy. They'd see me, they'd listen to me in their office, they'd write the pills, but no therapy, which is absurd looking back because you would think they would try that first, but they didn't. Um, and so January 2009, like right in the new year, I found myself having my first breakdown that would lead to hospitalization. Um, and it came about in a roundabout way. Uh, I was, I was done. I was tired and I was home alone in my apartment. It was my first adult apartment by myself and I was home by myself and I was staring down a pill bottle. And I was pretty, I was pretty set that that was, that was going to be the end. And then I got a phone call and it said the name of one friend and I answered it and I said, hello. And it was a different friend on the phone. It was somebody who lived out of town that happened to be in town and borrowed somebody's phone. And he was just like, what's going on? What's happening? And I explained the state I was in and he said I'm at the ice skating rink across the street from your house you've got five minutes to come to the ice or I'm showing up with the police so I grabbed my ice skates and I went ice skating all puffy faced and teary-eyed but I went ice skating and the next day I went to work and my boss took one look at me and she said you either call your mom to take you to the hospital or I'm taking you in and from there, I was put into my first outpatient therapy program. So that would have been January 2009. And that's the first time I ever started experiencing therapy. It was a group environment. It was outpatient. So Monday to Friday, it was like going to school. Monday to Friday from 8.30 to 2.30, you were in the classroom. And you were learning therapy and coping techniques. Um, how to manage like life skills around your mental illness. How to manage your finances with mental illness, how to manage your, your medication schedules on your own. Um, and I was about a week and a half into that program. It, would, it was supposed to be three weeks. And my therapists and my doctor made the decision that I needed to be admitted. And so that would be my first admittance. And that would go on for six weeks. And then you know, 23 and you're in the psych ward. And I don't know anybody out of my friends that had found themselves in that situation. So it was just this foreign territory. And I faced a lot of alienation. I mean, there were friends who did come to visit. And there were other friends that were like, really? Like, psych ward? Like, no. 
just no. So like, you really, I really started to pare down my friends list after that, and I, it really made me think. And uh, yeah, so I was released, and I went into a three week program after that, the outpatient program, and I completed it. Um, and then I went on to do another great program at a local facility. This is in Windsor, Ontario. Um, it was called the Mental Health Connections, and it was like a local resource center for people with mental health who had been discharged from hospital and referred by their doctors. And so it was kind of like a community center for people with mental illness. You could go on outings. They had field trips. Um, they had different, like, luncheons. They had different clubs. There was, like, a knitting club and a sewing club. But they offered a program called RAP, W-R-A-P, which stood for Wellness Recovery Action Plan. And it was basically a six-week course. You went one day a week for six weeks. And you basically made yourself a how-to manual um, with steps. Like, if I'm having a bad day, this is what I have to do. And it's a to-do list. And it could be as simple as get up, brush your teeth, take your meds. But it was a basic to-do list you could follow on days when you could do nothing else. So it taught me how to manage that. And um, it taught me how to start advocating for myself a little bit better with my doctors and still questioning things. Um, but after that three-week program and the six-week program, there wasn't anything offered again. So I went from having six weeks of hospital therapy and three weeks of outpatient therapy followed by six weeks of recovery therapy to having nothing again. And it was, it was just like being set adrift and flash forward to 2010, I was living in Ottawa and I found myself once again struggling. Uh, I was going through a medication change and I was, I was working at a pasta shop because I used to be a chef and I was working at this pasta shop at their hot lunch counter bar. I was going through a medication change and I was feeling really, really, really crummy. And so I went to my bosses openly and I said, listen, like, I have bipolar, I'm on these meds, they're tweaking them, I really don't feel well, I need a couple days off. And they were like, no problem. So I was like, great, they even drove me home. They drove me home that day so that I wouldn't have to take the bus when I wasn't feeling good. And so I was like, okay, this is cool, like, the bosses are cool, maybe I finally got a boss that, like, understands this. And then when I returned to work, three days later, they pulled me into the office and they legit said to me, we don't believe somebody with your condition should be working around knives and fire. So we're letting you go. And <laughs> I, I've never, that's gotta be the best line I've ever been giving while being fired. Because I mean, how do you say that to somebody? Like if you did that today, your business wouldn't be around very long, but this was, this was 2010 and people still weren't really talking about mental health. Um, so after that, I wound up being hospitalized for 10 days and less than a month after that, I again moved home to Windsor because like I just, I needed to look after my health. I needed to be by my family and I did good, but by that point I was, I was written off. Uh, by fall of that year, I was on provincial and federal disability. Uh, they were telling me I would never be stable enough to maintain a full-time job again. And I, uh, I wound up in the hospital again in October, but I checked myself out due to safety concerns. There were just some not kosher things happening with other patients that was making me fear for my safety. So... I was granted permission to sign out without it being credited against me. So like they discharged me without an AMA, uh, which was unheard of. Cause if you discharged yourself out of that ward, technically your psychiatrist had the right to dismiss you as a patient cause you were going against treatment, mm -hmm. but they saw my case so clearly that they were like, okay, yeah, you, you can check out. We understand our bad. And it's, it's quite an eye opener because in Windsor, there's, there's no, there's no real separation. So for me, somebody who just needs my meds adjusted, but in high functioning, I was with like schizophrenics and not, not passing judgment or anything. I'm just saying I was with people who presented with more serious delusions. And at one point, 
um, like I was, I, I had permissions to leave the floor. I, I was granted I could sign out and I could go walk around the hospital. I could go to the cafe. You'd have to check in every so often, but I was granted those permissions. And so to get onto the ward, you'd have to ring the doorbell. They'd unlock the door and let you in. On one of those times when I was returning for my permissions, another patient threw me aside, bolted and got on the elevator and broke out essentially. But like I got tossed. I didn't hit anything, thank God, but I got tossed aside. So like there it, it's it's it makes you question like how somebody is like I was I was twenty three, I was young and I was really small at the time. And you'd think that there would be more segregation between people who needed the extra attention and that, but there wasn't. So like I, I still had no real treatment because um, I signed out and again there was no therapy offered. Um, so they told me I wasn't going to work and I was now 26 on CPP and uh, ODSP which is Ontario Disability. I couldn't work, they told me, uh, that I wasn't going to be stable enough, and in 2011 I said the hell with it, and I said I was going to prove them wrong. So I went back to work, not as a chef, but managing a little gourmet fast food restaurant, um, and it was while working there that I met my husband, and our story started, and we met through a co-worker at a bar after hours, and that's how I wound up to New Brunswick. It took me a couple years to get out here from when we met, but I moved to New Brunswick and that's when I started to see changes in the mental health care treatment I was receiving. So I, for the first two years I saw a doctor in Moncton because the wait lists in Fredericton are just astronomical. So for the first two years I was with something, somebody in Moncton and they too just continued with the pills and refills. And at this point, my borderline hadn't been identified by anybody. I was labeled as bipolar, manic depressive, anxious, OCD, but nobody had ever brought up borderline personality disorder. I didn't even know what it was. Um, and so two years into living out here, I got placed with a doctor in Fredericton. And so I stopped seeing my doctor in Moncton and on our first appointment, he looked at me and he was like, so what medicines have they tried and what haven't they tried? And I, I started listing all the meds. At my worst point, I was at 14 pills a day. And we're talking everything from antidepressants to anti-anxiety meds, antipsychotics, uh, like this crazy, crazy cocktail. I was on so many pills a day that they were giving me pills to stay awake like they give narcoleptics. And... So I started listing the laundry list of which drugs I tried, which drugs I have allergies to. And my psychiatrist kind of stopped me and he said, I'm sorry that you know what any of those are. Like, you actually have this. And then he presented borderline personality to me. He's like, there are other aspects to your illness. He's like, but your main presenting problem is borderline. And you can be managed with just most likely antidepressants. And, yeah. So you went all those years. Yeah. And it took... What do you, what so do you... I started my first... My first doctor visit was when I was 18. Mm. And it took until I was... It was the day... If I'm not mistaken, it was the day before my 30th or my 31st birthday. Wow. That I was presented with the new diagnosis. And he, he, he actually apologized that I even knew what some of those drugs are because they're so harsh on your system. Mm. And... He goes, and there's therapy that can fix it. And so that's when I started seeing social workers at the Victoria Mental Health Center. Um, so I had a social worker who was my caseworker, and I would have therapy on a weekly basis. And then they enrolled me in a program called STEPS, which I am forever forgetting. It's an acronym, and I can never, ever remember the proper acronym. But it's a specific cognitive behavior therapy program meant to treat borderline personality disorder. What the kicker is, is when I said I'd never heard of it, he's like, well, your Moncton doctor put it in your notes on the first day he met you. But he never brought it up to me. 
He mentioned dialectical behavior therapy once, never again. He just mentioned it in passing, didn't say, you know, this could really help you. He just said, oh, have you heard of it? And that was it. But my doctor in Fredericton got me into the cognitive behavior therapy program. It was a 20-week program at the time. It's now been amended to 12 weeks. But it was a 20-week program at the time, three hours a week for 20 weeks. And I completed the program in 2015. And it had such a drastic effect on me being able to manage my illness that my husband actually said to me, you know, I never didn't love you, but I like you a lot more now. And if, if that's not a testament to therapy, then I don't know what is. Um, and so I'm actually now re-enrolled in it. I previously did it as a group program. Now I'm doing it one-on-one -on -one with my worker as a refresher. Uh, because I've had a bit of a backslide. In December, I had the biggest and the worst nervous breakdown of my life. Um, but thanks to having my team of therapists and my brilliant psychiatrist, I was able to avoid hospitalization, um, which is a good thing because I did a small hospitalization at the deck a couple years ago, and it was, it was interesting. We'll just leave it at that. Um, and so this time, because of my therapist and because of my psych team, I was able to stay home and manage my illness, but it did force an early retirement of sorts from my chef career. Uh, so I'm no longer cooking, um, but it's, it's a good thing. Uh, I still, you know, have my food interests, but I've got new opportunities that are coming up, such as the Project Semicolon, which I'm now a chapter leader for. And uh, I'm excited because now I can start speaking for the platform, helping to raise awareness that it gets better. I'm like, I know it sounds cliche, but I'm living proof because I'm here and I'm talking to you. Yeah. And so that's my story up till now. Yeah, I always say in my podcast, when you struggle means you're not giving up. Yeah. And that's the important thing. Do you remember Weeble Wobbles? No. It's like a kid's toy, and it's like rounded um, on the bottom, and okay. it bounces back and forth. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Mm -hmm. That was the motto of the toy. I'm a weeble wobble. Oh, so you yeah, just you don't fall. Weebles wobble, yeah. but you don't fall down. You gotta watch out for those speed wobbles. Yeah, my auntie calls me the comeback kid because it doesn't matter what's been thrown at me. I somehow always manage to bounce back to the other side. And I guess I'm gonna ask the question: Why do you feel? It's so important to share to everybody your story. So when I first got sick, I don't know anybody that's gone through nearly half of what I've gone through. I mean, looking back in hindsight, I'm sure most of my friends had struggles of their own. But I was the only 23-year-old I knew at the time that was in the psych ward. And I was probably one of the youngest people in there, if not the youngest. And it was hard going through all that alone without anybody that could truly relate to what I'd been through. And I felt so, so alienated. But it's funny, I was uh, I was fortunate enough to have been adopted, you might say, by some of the 30-something-year-old women on the ward. And um, they, are, they are who got me through my first day. They are veterans to the game, and they helped me to see that it was okay to need medication, that it was okay to go to therapy. And I don't know how I would have got through it without them. And, you know, if you ask me today what their first or last names were, I don't know that I ever knew their last names. And today I couldn't tell you their first names. But if I saw them on the street, I'd recognize them. So it's kind of funny what your brain keeps and doesn't keep. But I remember how kind they were in helping me to accept myself and my illnesses. And I hope that by telling my story, other young people will see they're not alone and that it's okay to ask for help that therapy is normal and helpful and that it's okay if you're serotonin store-bought. Yeah. I think the biggest thing I like about your whole story is how you're proactive and how you're wanting to know every detail of your therapy. Yeah. And you want to know what kind of drugs and what. And that alludes to my next question is, do you feel it's important to be more proactive and self-aware of your treatment and your medication? It's, it's very important to be proactive about the medications you're on. Um, you got to take the time to research your drugs and learn the side effects. You can't be afraid to ask the doctor why they're choosing a particular drug. And you can ask them how it works and learn the hows and whys of the drugs. You'll be more apt to stick to your routine. Uh, and that's one of the biggest things is sticking with it because the first few weeks are no joke. 
the uh, the side effects while your body adjusts to the antidepressants or whatever meds you may be adjusting to, they can really, really suck. And they can make you want to give up and make you feel worse physically before you feel better mentally. And it it's daunting because you, you're taking these new pills and you're wondering, like, what the hell am I doing to myself? But then that stuff usually comes to a level after two to three weeks and then things start to work normal and things start to like click back into place again and it's also to remember that it can take four to six weeks or so before you start to notice the changes when you get a new med so like a lot of people take it for a week or two say oh it's it's side effects and it's not doing anything and they give up and that's one of the worst things you can do is to stop a med cold turkey like you've always got to talk to your doctor and make a game plan because some meds cause side effects when stopped immediately and another thing is just because you're feeling better doesn't necessarily mean it's time to stop the meds it could just be that the meds are doing their job which is most likely the case so you know it's it's getting through that initial few weeks of feeling kind of blah with the pills and sticking it through to see the benefits and above all not making any decisions without talking to your doctor always whether you just you can't ever toy around with it and you should never ever self-adjust and just always keep your doctor in your game plan have one or two family members who know your routine so if you get sick and you find yourself in a position in the hospital where you can't advocate for yourself You need to have a couple family members that know your routine and know your med schedule because that's that's key and if you should ever find yourself in the hospital without somebody that can advocate for that when you can't it can open a whole slew of problems because your med team needs to know what you're on so it's I my husband knows my routine he could probably tell you every drug I take and it's it helps to be open because the more open you are, the more people you have in your corner supporting you, you're more apt to follow through and stick with your routine to see the benefits from it. So when you're talking about keep your doctors, you should be telling them how you feel with the meds because there is an adjustment, right? Low, yeah. lower dose, higher yeah. dose, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I actually, I have a mood tracker. I use a... I use a mood tracker, um, and it's kind of cool. It prompts me a couple times a day and asks me how I'm feeling on a scale of sad face to smiley face. There's five levels, and you pick. And then at the end of the day, it averages out your reaction, and it marks on your chart. Uh, There's three colors. There's green, gray, and red. Green being good day, gray being neutral day, red being bad day, and then it marks it in like a gradient of the shade of the color. Mm-hmm. So it actually, it's it's super cool. Um, the app I use is called the Finch app, and it's kind of like a Tamagotchi, but you get this little baby bird, and it goes on adventures, and to keep it alive, you do self-care chores. And it's kind of cool because it's mm-hmm. actually got little cognitive behavior therapy coaches in it, um, it can, it can coach you through grounding exercises and anxiety attacks. Uh, it's got a really cool, um, breathing coach with haptic feedback. Uh, and there's different categories, like whether you're trying to calm down or trying to focus, you can choose different breathing patterns. It's called the Finch app and it's on the Play Store and on Apple Store. Um, I think there's a nominal fee if you want like the bonus, but you can use the mood trackers and stuff. And my my psych team is just blown away with this app because like it's the homework they're assigning me to do but I don't I'm not one for paperwork but this just lets me click up a button on my phone track my moods and so when my doctor comes back to me and says okay well we treat your meds on this day what kind of patterns are you noticing since I have a tangible feedback that I can reference and say to my doctor well this is actually what's happening like good days bad days um I use tech to track a lot of my symptoms. I use a sleep tracker as well to keep track of that because I have a lot of nightmares mm-hmm. um, with some of my complications. So I, I rely on technology to help me give my doctors the feedback that they need. That's interesting. That's yeah. Really interesting. Now, I follow you on Facebook, so um, and I see a lot of happy days. And then yeah. 
then all of a sudden I'll see a day where you're smiling, but you're struggling and you still have your bad days. Give some things you do to make your, like, help yourself manage it. Uh, not to sound like a broken record, but the Finch app actually has a gratitude and an affirmation section, and it has, a it has all these different reflection sections, which give you prompted journal questions. Um, I like to use the gratitude one and the affirmation ones, because afterwards you can go back and look at your notes. So, on bad days, I can go into my app and I can see things that are associated with my happy moods. I can push it. And it'll show me all the journal entries I've made about happy things recently that it's picked up on from the app. And so I look back on my gratitude and my affirmation lists. Um, and I reach out to friends. And this is going to sound funny. I start conversations not to talk about my day, to, but to ask them about theirs and tell them that I hope the day was kind to them. I hate, I don't, well, sorry, hate's a strong word. I don't necessarily like telling people to have a good day because... When I'm really depressed and somebody tells me to have a good day, I kind of want to tell them to go F themselves. So I twist it and I say, I hope the day is kind to you. And so I start a conversation about that to ask them about their day. And starting these conversations reminds me of the good around me and the good people I choose to surround myself with. And I remember it's not so bad. And there's a line in the Jack's Mannequin song, Swim, which is, I have swim tattooed on my wrist with a semicolon for the eye. Uh, and the line in the song is, you haven't come this far to fall off the earth. And that song on my bad days, it's kind of cheesy, but it's my anthem. And I blare it, and it's that line. is You haven't come this far to fall off the earth. That's good. Yeah. Um, what I do is, I, I sometimes I'll get them a text, and I'll be the same as you, and I'll say, hate. And I'm like, I don't like that word. So I reverse it and put dislike. That's my word now. That I use instead of that word. Yeah. Because there's such so many things surrounded with that word. So I'm going to get into what advice you'd like to give to teenagers, young adults that, that suffer alone in men- mental health. Ask for help. I didn't ask for help for the first time until I was 18. But I probably should have asked for help when I started getting like bullied and beat up in grade school. And I didn't. So ask for help because it might seem scary or embarrassing but I promise it's worth it there's help there's hope and therapy works wonders if you invest in it and speaking of therapy do the homework no matter how silly it seems you might you might find it silly and I definitely have found my homework silly um but then you find yourself using the techniques in real life whether consciously or subconsciously and it's it's like a light bulb moment like hey that worked and, um, yeah, and honestly, the biggest thing you can do to, to help yourself is learn to breathe. Yeah. Um, step back. Yeah. Learn to breathe. Yeah. So learn of... to breathe and know that it's okay to ask for help because people care and they give a shit and they'll step up to the plate and you'll be surprised who's in your corner when you don't think anybody is. Yeah. Because there's such a stigma and everyone's scared that how they're going to be perceived in our society so so manage them but when i went to one of my did a podcast on cognitive therapy our brain naturally thinks negative off the bat yeah and with you it's probably comes really quick with well yeah because yeah. so so a little background on emotional intensity disorder is you can see well not you specifically but the average person can see things in shades of gray They can look at something, they can see the pros and cons in it, they can see the good and the bad in one thing. I see things black and white, there's, there's, it's either all good or all negative. And I tend to jump to the negative first, but therapy has worked wonders and I can now see shades of grey. And it's, it's kind of funny because it's, it's not, it's not multiple personalities, it's, it's, it's just you have trouble processing that things can be good and bad at the same time. And everything feels more intense. When you're happy, it's happier than happy. And when you're sad, it's sadder than sad. And um, it just, yeah. Yeah. Um, Now my last question, you talk about your husband being your door. Yeah. Now my question is going to be worded around 
what would you like to say to friends, family, partners, spouses, wives, husbands that are trying to support people in their lives that have mental health challenges on a daily basis and going through episodes and whatnot? Yeah. Um, I'd say please be patient. Don't pity us. Love us a little extra hard on our bad days. Um, there's a great association. It's called NAMI, which stands for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, and they're, they're, they're really predominantly online. Now, when I found out about them, it was from a flyer tacked up at that mental health community center back home. Uh, but one of the things NAMI does is it offers support groups for the loved ones of those dealing with mental illnesses. Um, and I think it's, I think it's super important that caretakers, for lack of a better term, or, you know, whoever, whoever's your main person in your life, like, seeing us go through mental illness is painful, and it's painful to the people that watch it, and if you're dealing with somebody on a day-to-day basis with mental illness, chances are you could probably benefit from talking to someone yourself, because it can it can teach you how to better help them. It'll give you more tools in your toolbox on how to help them. Um, so support groups uh, are great because just like people with mental illness aren't alone, people who take care of mental uh, people with mental illness are not alone. Um, one thing would be don't ask point blank questions about therapy, but let us know that the door is open. I don't, I don't want to, I feel like you don't want to come home from therapy and be like, so what'd you talk about? But I like to know that I have the option to bring up the conversation if I need to. And that's, that's one thing I always say to my husband when we're going through tense moments, like, listen, if you don't want me to, I won't ask you what's wrong, but I'm here to listen and, um, listen actively. Let us put words to it without interrupting or comparing or trying to say, Oh, I get that because, you know, I was sad once. No, just let us let us say what we're saying. And please know that even if it makes no sense to you, a feeling that we feel is valid and real because we feel it, even if it's not logical. So sometimes I have meltdowns and they could be triggered by, I can't get my braid pinned the right way in my hair. And it could be something so simple, but on a bad day, something like that could completely, completely set me off. And the one thing that's going to push me farther is somebody saying, well, it's just a hairpin. Why are you so upset? It doesn't matter why we're upset. We're upset. We're feeling it. It's real and it's valid. And even if it's not logical, it's it's real to us. And like I said, like, don't. Be afraid to seek help for yourself because living with somebody with mental illness takes a special sort of special and it is not an easy feat and the last thing you want is to lose track of your own health while you're trying to help care for somebody else because then you're no good to either of you really so help it's It's the, uh, my therapist likes to reference it to the oxygen mask on an airplane. Put your own on before helping others. So, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help for yourself, too, because... So be self-aware of what's going on if you're struggling. Exactly. Now, my biggest thing is when when I'm talking about, when you were talking about engaging, like, say that you're having a, you know, during our podcast, I was actively engaged had eye contact, yeah. listen to what you said. And that's what you mean, you mean active engagement. Yeah. No judgment. Yeah. I didn't cut you off. Yeah. I let you say what you had to say. Exactly. And then when I found my point, I could say something to engage and that's And like, see I'm that's one of the things. Like I'm a rambler. Like when I'm, mm-hmm. you know, having an episode or something, like I need to get the words to it. I need to put the words to it. And One of the other bigger things you can do, too, is say, do you need a solution or do you need an ear? Because I might not need a solution. I might literally just need to put words to it to get it out of my head and move past it. So 
always give them the option because sometimes you just got to put words to it and you're not looking for an answer. You just need to feel what you're feeling and vocalize it. And so it's not always about being a fixer. See, I had um, one of my high school friends, uh, Natalie Way, who has a daughter with um, the same, I would say the same borderline personality mm -hmm. struggles. Yep. And I see her on Facebook a lot and I talk to her and I engage with her and she's a wonderful person. She was very active and proactive with her child because you can't diagnose a child until they're 18. Yeah. So she had this at 16. Yeah. She's been in the ICU for nine days because she wanted to take her life. It's a real struggle and she always says, I would never want to be in my daughter like what, what's in her head. She struggles and it never, I can never understand, Yeah. which is so huge. And there's a lot of universities that give mental health mm -hmm. groups. I know the UMB does because she talked about it. She talked about being proactive. Yeah. So, so that's one of the cool things is uh, I'll be I'll be speaking to local schools. Uh, mm -hmm. So one of the things Project Semicolon does is they have like a resource kit that you can get in boxes, and um, you can have them made out in dedication to people. So I, I'd really like to, I'm going to put it on my list. I'm going to try and get one of these boxes into each one of our local high schools here in Fredericton and Armacto, um, and get them put into Lexi's name. That's wicked. Yeah. So that's, that's on the to-do list for the next couple of weeks. No, I know our government has put more initiatives into mental health, but I still do not think it's enough. No. Um, because I work as a correctional officer and we don't work eight to four. We work 24-7 because we have to take care of our, you know, residents. Well, or I showed up at the deck when I had to be treated, and I needed an admission. I needed a med adjustment. And they didn't look at me as a person. They looked at me based on my diagnosis. And they put me in one of the protection rooms for the entirety of my stay. And by protection room, I mean... I had a mattress and a pillow. Um, I'm somebody with sensory issues. I can't sleep without a weighted blanket. And I need a stuffy. And <laughs> when I sleep, I've got a unicorn. His name's Maude. Um, well, that's a good name. And, and so these are just small things that I actually need to sleep because I do have sensory issues. And Adam had to fight tooth and nail for me to be allowed to have this weighted blanket and a stuffy like there it, it's a blanket and a stuffy animal and you would have thought he was asking me to bring glass bottles or something and he he fought and he finally got that but they kept me in that room for two days three days i don't i lost track i was in from the i i don't know it was two or three days and it was a blur because I wasn't allowed any electronics, so I couldn't have my watch. Um, so you don't really know what time of day it is. Uh, you're in a corridor completely isolated for everybody. And you're in your own room and you're not allowed to leave your room except to use the washroom or the shower. And the last thing I needed when I presented was to be isolated. Like, I presented with my husband, my caring husband, who was, like, more than willing to do whatever he needed. And they didn't even call my psychiatrist until I was discharged. He didn't even find out I'd been admitted until I was discharged. And, sure. you know, so that's that's a case of where they were looking at it based on the diagnosis, not the person. I wasn't a threat to anybody. I had no plan, no intentions. I just knew I needed help. And despite having no plans and intentions, they still put me in that isolation room for the entirety of my stay. So when I had my breakdown in November, it was, there was a bit of a dramatic incident, and they had to call the paramedics, and uh, I bumped my head and kind of split it. And he, the paramedics asked if I wanted to go in for a psych consult to get something stronger than the, the PRN that I'm prescribed for my anxiety. And I just looked at them and I was like, no, no way. Like, I, I just, I, it, it's the first time I've ever been so soured. It was the shortest of all my hospital stays that I've ever had. 
It was by far the most traumatic one I've ever had. So there's huge gaps in her mental health. Huge gaps. Because your psychiatrist should have been the first call. Yep. And it would have been rectified probably within that hour or two or three. Because yep. I imagine he would respond quickly and know it was you. Yep. So there's obviously big gaps that need to be addressed. And yep. I mean, and like, listen, listen to what the patient's family who's bringing them in is telling you. Like, if the patient's family, and I mean, I guess every situation's different, but, like, I had my husband right there saying, like, listen, like, she, she'll be cared for, like, we can take care of her, like, and they, they were telling me, oh, you're gonna, you know, you'll be in the ward, and there's a therapy dog that comes to visit, and I was like, great, awesome, and then I got upstairs, and it's like somebody missed the memo, and they were like, oh, no, this, this is where you're staying. It's almost like they tricked you. Yeah. To get, to get I wouldn't I wouldn't have signed in. Yeah. If they had told mm-hmm. me I was going to be in isolation, there's no way I would have voluntarily signed in. Because that's that's a huge trigger. Yeah. Because you're alone, you have no coping mechanisms, yeah. you have padded walls, yeah. blanket, no, and you're just sitting there. So somebody with chronic nightmares put them in a room by themselves for forty hours. Because they don't know your history. Yeah. And your psychiatrist has the history, which would have told them. Yeah. So there's huge gaps and huge gaps, huge gaps in our mental health I know our government's investing more money but I don't think they know the right plan there's no contingency plan and that happened through my work like different things but anyway we better tie this up we've been almost 45 minutes (laughs) but it's a wonderful pleasure to share your story hear what you had to say and I think you're going to help a lot of people out there worldwide yeah, I'm I super excited. Worldwide. Like I said, I got my first fundraising event coming up, and yep. we're getting this wheels uh, moving. So my next podcast with you, I'm going to talk about semicolon. Cool. And I want to talk about it because it's a, it's worldwide. There's millions of people yeah. involved in this. Yeah, if you if you pull up the website link, right on the top, it tells you, uh, it says right at the top, it's how many people they reach and help. Um, I think I just sent you the link if you call it up. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when, when you really get into semicolon, anybody can research it. Yeah, so anybody. it's Project Semicolon online. It's projectsemicolon.com, and I'm the chapter leader for New Brunswick. Uh, they made a typo on the website, so they got to correct that. But um, yeah, so it gives you stats at the top, and then from the website, you can. there are different help aids. Um, there are different resources you can access to seek help. Uh, Project Semicolon in and of itself is not a helpline, but they offer a platform in which you can find help for diagnosis and resources. So it's an anti-suicide platform, but it isn't a helpline. And I just feel like that should be clarified. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of really great resources to help you learn about mental illness and treatments that are available and stuff and it's a great way to tie everything together and I'll be fundraising for it now um which is really cool because it gives me a way to give back I'm not just telling my story I'm helping give back so it's pretty cool it's awesome I'm looking forward to it I think I've actually joined in so kind of logged into that and I've seen that might be something to look out for Thank you very much for your time. I know your time is valuable. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you having me here. So this ended the podcast with Jess, the interview. And I just wanted to reflect on the whole story and her endurance and her tenacity and a lot of other admirable traits. Just the never give up attitude, the comeback kid, the just everything that she did. And she struggled, but she never gave up. And that's what this whole thing is about, never giving up. You struggle, but you get back up. And I found her story so unique. And and it was my second time listening to the story because we had a meeting before I did the podcast. So we could get a general sense of each other and meet each other. And, you know, I didn't know Jess. And I basically... Bruce Olihan got in touch with me because he did a newspaper article and he knows I do a podcast on mental health and he basically threw a, you know, her name out there and Facebook and get in contact. So I contacted Jess, had a great conversation when I went over there. Fantastic. Her husband's just dynamite. 
in great couple and they complement each other so much. They're, uh, but what I like about Jess is her continued caring of other people. Even though she's struggling herself and has her own issues, she's willing to put herself out there. I find that so brave, so admirable, and just fills me full of joy. In listening to her and that when she was telling her story, it's almost like an audio book where you just sit back and listen. And she's so engaging. She's going to do so wonderful going to those uh, schools and, and talking to the kids because she has that roundabout personality. Jess, I know I'm embarrassing you, but I, I just have to get this out. I think you are going to be able to do something and help a lot of people with everything that you do. And everybody, follow her on Facebook. She Every day she has posts. Um, I'm going to put it in the writing, her full name. Uh, and follow her, and follow her on her Facebook, Instagram. She's a wonderful personality, and you know, even though she has her days, she's so good-spirited. So I really enjoyed this. I want to thank you so much for listening to my podcast. Share, like, do whatever you can do to help me. In the near future, I'm looking at doing a Patreon system, where I'm looking at you donate, and I give you a certain merchandise, whether it's a T-shirt, hat, or a tote bag, wherever I'm banned. But I also get notice on my podcast. I mention your name. So it's just supporting me. I do this out of my own money. And I'm just looking at maybe expanding and doing different stuff. And looking at donating proceeds when I cover my cost. To maybe semicolon project. Or other health initiatives that's in my community. I'm looking at giving back to the community. That's what this is all about. I'm Alan Hilton. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll talk to you really, really soon.